Okay, if you uh, turn with me to Second Timothy, we're going to pick up our study through this incredible letter, Paul's last letter, written from prison whilst he was in chains, and yet he writes to encourage, he writes to strengthen his young son in the faith. You know, under under duress and in those kind of conditions, how many of us would? do that kind of thing, or we'd just be concerned about our own state. Um, but Paul, incredible, incredible servant of the Lord. Let's bow our hearts and just pray as we, we come to this passage this morning. Father, we just ask that you give us eyes that will see spiritual things and ears that will hear. Um, Father, we want to grow in grace. Lord, we don't want to just stay where we are in our Christian lives. We want to move forward. We want to know more of you. Um, and so, Lord, as we look at these things this morning, help us to see, Lord, that next step that we should be taking. Um, Father, don't allow us ever to become comfortable where we are, um, but always, Lord, striving to know more of you, um, to, Lord, live by that grace, to walk by faith. Uh, We just give you this time and pray your spirit lead us now in this study. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time we got up as far as uh, verse 11, so we're going to springboard uh, from there in a moment. Let me just remind you again that the real theme throughout this second letter to Timothy uh, is loyalty. Um, Paul is encouraging Timothy, um, first of all in the first chapter, to be loyal through the sufferings that he was going through. Uh, In the second chapter, it's to be loyal in the service. And we give some various examples that Paul will give. Uh, And then we get the kind of challenge to be loyal through the apostasy. And it's interesting because in one sense all these things have been applicable through all the ages of the church. But certainly at the time this was written, so important for Timothy to hear these things. And for us, going through the things that we're going through, the days that we're living in, uh, again, so apt, uh, these lessons that we're learning and then finally, um, the last part of the book really is looking at the way the Lord is so loyal to his servants, the promises he's made to us, to never leave us, to never forsake us. Uh, even though others may abandon us and, and leave us, the Lord will never do so. Um, so that's kind of where we've, we've been. Now we're going to jump into um, verse 12 in a second, but because we're not that far into it, let's just read from the beginning uh, and then we'll get a good kind of running start into this as we go. So, Second uh, Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace. We mentioned last time those three here apply. Not just uh, grace and peace, but mercy. Paul adds that for the pastors. Uh, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve for my forefathers with a pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which first dwelt in thy grandmother Lewis and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that is in thee also. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance, that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, 
But be thou partakers of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. So that's where we, we kind of finished last time. And then Paul carries on the verse we've got on the screen, but please follow on. For the which cause I also suffer these things. So Paul's saying it's because of the gospel that I preach that I suffer. You know, if, if we didn't preach the gospel, we wouldn't suffer. The world wouldn't hate us. The world wouldn't have any problem with us if we went along with the things it said. But the reason that Christians get persecuted, the reason that sometimes we find it hard and we find people will not want to, to befriend us or just even sometimes acknowledge our existence is because we're preaching a gospel that they find offensive because it exposes them as sinners. And Paul says, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, he said, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What a wonderful statement. This is a verse I'm sure that many of us have memorized in part, certainly. That we know whom we've believed. You know, this is what makes it all worthwhile. We're not just following a set of creeds. We're not just following some doctrine. We're not just following some set of rules. We're following a person. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is why Christianity is what it is. You know, it's not just about loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's not just about loving God. You know, there's lots of religions and there's lots of uh, kind of philosophical positions where people try to do good things. But this is something so different because the basis of our faith is Jesus Christ. It's a person. And as Paul says, you know, I, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why should I be ashamed of the gospel? Because I know whom I've believed. And Paul had met Jesus, remember, on, that, on the road to Damascus. Paul had actually met Jesus. But you, know, you and I have met Jesus. We may not have had that same kind of Damascus Road experience, but if you are saved, if you're born again, then you also have met Jesus, and you have the privilege of talking with Jesus. And through his spirit, he speaks to us. Paul says, I know whom I've believed. I'm persuaded. Absolutely convinced is, is the, the intent there. It's not just a, you know, um, uh, I'm hoping this might be so. But there's no room left for any doubt. Paul says, I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What day is he talking about? Well, Paul's talking about the day that he speaks of many times through the New Testament in his letters. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3 is one great example of that. Let's just turn to 2 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Apologies, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's just turn there because this is a day that Paul hangs so much on and speaks so much about that we need to be very familiar with this day because it should be what we're looking forward to also. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, going down, picking up at verse 11, 
Paul says there, for other foundation can no man lay than that uh, is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is our foundation, and that's what we're building upon. And he says, now if any man build upon this foundation, and he gives us six types of material here. He says, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. Six types of materials. He says, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day... This is the day that Paul's talking about here in verse 12 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. This day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And he says, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Paul here is speaking about what later in 2 Corinthians he referred to the beamer seat or the judgment seat of Christ. This is the point when believers will be caught up to the throne. The time of the rapture, we will stand before the throne of God. It's the, the point we read about in Revelation where uh, we get our song or hymn crowning with many crowns and we'll stand before the throne. And our work will be assessed. Not, not, it's not an issue of salvation. We have been saved. And we can't add to our salvation. We can't do anything to, to earn salvation. That's a free gift. It's purely grace. But we are instructed to serve and to live our lives to glorify God. To sow to the spirit and not to the flesh. To lay up our treasure in heaven and so on. And this is the day that Paul's talking about. Paul's saying here, I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. Now, in one sense, he's talking about his own life, his soul. He knows that he's, he's secure, he's safe. But there's the other element that all of Paul's ministry and the work, everything he's done has not been in vain because all of it will be assessed. And those types of materials we have, they're wood, hay, and straw. Going through fire, they're burnt up. There's nothing left. And that speaks of the work of the flesh, the things that, that we could do that are purely for our own ends or, the, or not for the kingdom of God. And then there's the gold, the silver, the precious stones. Those are the things that are valuable in God's sight. When we, we serve each other, when we minister to each other, you know, when we get on our knees and we intercede and we pray for each other, when we practically look to go out and proclaim the gospel in various different ways, sometimes just the way we're living in circumstances, by being a light in the darkness that we're called to, to be, by being ambassadors. Those are the gold and silver and precious stones, which when they go through fire, they're purified. And we're told that the work is going to be assessed effectively. It's going to be judged. And and, and only that which has been done for the Lord will survive. Now, in the New Testament, we're given a number of uh, rewards mentioned, but specifically crowns are one of the rewards that are mentioned a number of times. And there's five crowns. We've mentioned this a number of times in the past um, that are specifically mentioned that are given as rewards for believers. But those crowns, when we get to Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, we find that we lay those crowns at Jesus' feet. So all the rewards that we get when we stand before the throne for faithful service, for faithful ministry, we get to give straight back to Jesus. I don't know about you, but there's a beautiful picture in that because, you know, imagine you've got the opportunity of going to somebody's party you know you typically would take a gift or so along and you arrive at the doorstep and there's other people in front of you and they've all got their gifts that they're giving to the host you know if you've arrived and you've not got anything imagine how awkward you would feel well how awkward would you feel 
getting there before the throne and other people are laying those crowns that they've been given for faithful service before the Lord and you have nothing. Because maybe you know, you're sown to the things of this life. Maybe the, the, your hobbies and your pastimes and your pursuits that you, you do. You know, there's nothing intrinsically wrong in any of those things. But as Paul says, that you know, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. You know, we should be spending our time on the things for the kingdom of God. And, and if we are doing that, when we get to stand before the throne... What a great privilege we have to give something back to Jesus. It's the only thing I can see in Scripture anywhere where we actually get to give something to Jesus. And it's an expression of our love for him. It's an expression really of our gratitude of all that he's done for us. Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed that I'm in prison, that I've been persecuted, and that the Romans are about to kill me. He knew that was coming. I'm not ashamed for I know who I believe. I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed. All the the treasure that is laid up in heaven, that's safe. You know, the stuff in this world just rots, it decays. It has no lasting value. You know, the the best of things that we have now, you know, in in a few years' time, they're, they're not the same. But that which is spiritual, that which is laid up in heaven, it's of eternal value. And those, those things are safe, they're protected. Moth and rust doesn't destroy those things. But most importantly, our own souls. Paul knew that he'd committed his life to Jesus Christ. And it was safe. He's already said, we saw in the previous um, verse, uh, in verse 10, Paul made the statement that, that Jesus has abolished death. That he's made death of no effect. You know, yes, we still die. Yes, there's still sorrow when we do die and when loved ones die and so on. But the power of death is completely gone. Because death no longer has the ability to separate us. You see... The love that is in Christ or through Christ for us, through him dying for us, raising us again, raising up again, and for us then being promised this, this great promise of the resurrection, death no longer has any power whatsoever. It's been abolished. And Paul's saying here, I don't have to fear death. I don't fear what's coming. I'm confident. I've committed these things to him and it's safe. These things I've committed unto him against that day. You know, no, it's not what you believe, but in whom you've relied. You know, as I said a moment ago, salvation is not about doctrines. It's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. And that word that we have there, I've committed unto him. The, the word is deposited effectively. You know, you and I really are his debtors for all he has done for us. And the verse goes on and says, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. It's quite an important statement. It's because Paul's saying, first of all, I'm not ashamed of the way I've lived my life. I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of this gospel that I've proclaimed. But he's saying, but be careful because he's already talked a little bit already about those that would twist and pervert the gospel and so on. But he says, be careful, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. 
You know, we, we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the scripture. We believe that scripture is God's word, that it is all God breathed. Not as some modern versions would say, all scripture that is breathed of God. No, no, no. no, no. All scripture is God breathed. We're going to get to that verse in a week or two's time, Lord willing. 2 Timothy 3.16. But all scripture is God's breath. He's breathed it out. He's given it to us. And yet sadly, so many in the church today will say, well, they believe that the Bible contains the word of God, but they don't believe that it is the word of God. Well, the moment you start doing that, which bits do you take? Which bits don't you take? I I used to joke years ago, an old Bible I had, it literally started to fall apart and various chunks would come out. Um, and I used to say that you know it's quite handy because some churches I could go to and I could take out the books I didn't need. Um, you know, but <laughs> sadly, you would take out an awful lot of scripture for, for many churches because they dismiss so many things. There was a minister back in Kent where I came from, uh, and one of my friends, a really good friend who's now gone home to be with the Lord, um, his daughter was at a school, and this minister had come into the school. And had basically said that um, the whole uh, account with Noah and the flood and all of that was just a myth. That it didn't really happen. And, and the Bible was really just, just giving us some interesting stories and things. And you know, there, there were some cultural things at that time. And try to spin it off. It, it wasn't what the Bible said, basically. So my, my friend said to me, you know, could we go and have a chat with him, do you think? So I said, I'd love to. So we went around and we had a chat with this man and we brought these things up and he he said well no I, he said, I don't believe that, that those things really happened I said well okay what do you believe and I, I, we, we got to I said do you believe you know, let's just start you believe that Jesus came do you believe that Jesus's earthly mother as we have in scripture was Mary and you know her father was Heli and he goes well I, I think probably there's some, some good grounds for, for accepting that I said, so, so we go back, we've got these genealogies. What about King David? Well, I'm not sure about King David. He said, I'm not sure whether he was a real individual or not. I said, but, but we've got the history. I said, you know, you look at the nation of Israel, what they've based on. I said, well, what about, you know, go back to Abraham. Oh, he said, no, no. He said, Abraham may have been some nomad at the time. He said, and some stories were told. He said, but he said, that, you know, in the Bible, it's just been put in a very dramatic way for us. He said, but you know, there's spiritual truths we can gain from these things. At that point, I was getting more and more, more irate. You know, this, this, this minister of a church who's teaching people in his congregation didn't believe in creation, didn't believe in Noah, didn't believe in the flood, didn't believe that Abraham was a real person. It's incredible. Incredible. We, we left. I don't know that we, uh, we, we got anywhere with this individual. I, I tried to... You know, again, just just logically look at what Scripture shows us, and the, these genealogies and these names. And you know, at which point does it suddenly become fiction? You know, when you've got these genealogies so clearly laid out. There you go. J. Vernon McGee said, "When a church or other Christian organization goes liberal, it usually starts with a weakening of their leaders' convictions about the Word of God." How true that is. I shared a few quotes the other week, you know, about the the way many in the church have left the church because they no longer believe that the Bible is the word of God. You know, once that foundation is undone, then what about the promises? What about all the things that we are holding on to, the things that Paul was holding on to, the things he was saying he wasn't ashamed of? 
You know, talking about laying up treasure in heaven and so on, not being, you know, or looking forward to that day, but when you start taking passages out and trying to make Scripture fit our culture, well, we have a real problem. And Paul, knowing these things were going on at that time in Ephesus and in that area, in the whole region, and particularly North Africa at that time, and there was um, lots of heresies and things starting to be introduced into the church. And Paul says, hold fast, grab onto, don't let go of the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. He says, that good thing that which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. You see, this isn't just man's opinion. This isn't man's view of what we think might be true or not. This is what Jesus Christ taught. It's what the apostles then emphasized and also reiterated. It's what's recorded in the pages of Scripture. And these are the things that we should hold on to, regardless of what's going on in our culture, what's going on around us. The Christian life can only be truly lived in the power of of the Holy Spirit and sadly so many don't really know the Holy Spirit they don't have a relationship with the Holy Spirit as they should you know we were talking a Bible study a few weeks ago about the incredible gift that the Holy Spirit is that he has been given to the church forever that's what Jesus stated in John's gospel we have it recorded that, that Jesus said the Holy Spirit will be given to the church forever in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit came upon individuals and gave them power for certain ministries, for certain works they were to do. Such as building the tabernacle and those kind of things, the individuals involved in that. People like Samson, who the Holy Spirit came upon, gave him supernatural power for, for ministry. But in those situations, we find that with Samson, the Spirit left Samson. With Saul, another great example, whom the Holy Spirit had come upon him, but then the Holy Spirit leaves Saul. David, after his transgression with Bathsheba, we read about in Psalm 51, makes that, that real kind of chilling prayer in a sense where he cries out to God and says, Lord, take not thy spirit from me. David, looking at Saul, effectively realizing what happened, he doesn't say, don't take the kingdom from me. Don't take my power and my authority away. He says, no, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. David recognized just how incredible a gift the Holy Spirit really was. And you and I have been given this gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us to understand God's word. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us to walk by faith. This thou knowest that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me. Paul had this problem where people that had started the journey had turned back and they'd gone off into the world, gone off into their other pursuits. He says, of whom are Phygelius and Homogenes. Now, these two names he mentions, it's interesting that Paul actually gives us their names. You know, sometimes people will say, oh, you know, we shouldn't name names and things like that. Well, Paul does here. But why does Paul do it? I think Paul does it here because he wants to warn not just Timothy, but those that would, would hear from Timothy, that these two individuals are now dangerous. Keep away from them. You know, and there are individuals that are masquerading as Christians that are in the church that you need to be aware of are dangerous and deceitful. And one of those that I mentioned this morning, because a new book is just coming out, is Steve Chalk. Some of you may have heard of Steve Chalk. Steve Chalk had a um, 
Christian ministry many years ago. He was particularly involved in a lot of youth ministry and youth, youth work and he became kind of the next biggest thing and he was speaking at you know spring harvest and christian conferences and all sorts of things and all of a sudden he finds himself on telly and you know a great platform to speak and then he wrote a book about the lost words of jesus and so on and he's just recently done um a book i think the title is the lost message of paul um where he basically argues that a lot of what we have in the new testament was actually written by paul and so on i read a review the other day and it was just just atrocious I actually had the opportunity, I was speaking to Steve Chalk some years ago, um, it was actually at a um, um, Christian exhibition, um, and he was there, and I was, I was there with the job I had at the time, and so I went, I went and had a chat with him, because it had been reported that he'd come out and said that um, Christians that teach creation uh, basically should stop doing it because it was tantamount to child abuse. That, that was basically what was reported. It was an article in the Telegraph many, many years ago. And, and I thought, well, look, you know, we, we get a lot of things that the, the press says. You know, it, may, it might not have been true. So I, I went and I chat with him. And I challenged him on it. I said, look, you know, this article was in the paper. Um, because at that time he'd opened up his own Christian academy uh, and so on. And this is why this, this whole thing had been mentioned. Uh, and I said, you know, this, this was reported that you said that. I said, you know, can I just, was that right? Is, did they misquote you? And he said, oh, no, no. He said, that's, that's what I believe. He said, you know, the first, he said, the first 11 chapters of the Bible, he said, and these are his words, quote, and I remember them. The Hebrew poetry penned in Babylon. I said, sorry? He said, it was just Hebrew poetry. He said, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So all those that prior to Babylon... All those kings of Israel that read the Torah, read the law, what were they reading? If it hasn't been written yet, it's a fundamental problem. How can you read something that hasn't yet been written? And yet the kings of Israel were to write out a copy of the law. That was before Babylon. There was just no foundation whatsoever. We had a, a debate for a little while, which was utterly fruitless. But now he's going on and he's writing these books. And, and, and yeah, there are, there are others who um, very much kind of the whole emerging church scene and so on, uh, who have acclaimed this book and said how great it is and so on. It's it's great to have these fresh thinkers and so on. Um, But just as Paul is doing here, we need to be aware that our individuals that are, are, are teaching utter nonsense and they're dangerous because believers who don't have the truth, who haven't been taught, get led away by these things. Again, there is a time to name and shame if it prevents others from being deceived. But at the same time, I would say there's a very fine line between naming and shaming and becoming an accuser of the brethren. There are people that have set up whole ministries tearing down believers, attacking anybody, attacking anything that is done. If it doesn't quite fit with their brand of Christianity, then we cast it out. And we need to be wise, we need to be discerning. We need to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. That's what Jesus said. And there are times that it's proper and right to name names. But there are other times that we need to give each other a little bit of grace. You know, there are things that I believed years ago growing up in my Christian walk that I now have rejected. I've moved away from those things. I remember when I was young trying to understand the whole issue of spiritual warfare. And I read a book by 
Another individual I will mention named uh, Peter C. Wagner. I'd encourage you never to read any book that that man's written. Dangerous. Dangerous stuff. But at the time, as a young Christian, I'm reading it, and it, it just seemed to make sense. But by God's grace, the Lord led me to hear believers that were teaching the truth of the word of God. You know, he had me believing for a while that, you know, wherever there was, there were clouds, there were these territorial spirits and we were under their influence and so on. And I praise God now, I can go out and I can look at a cloud. I know it's just rain inside it. It's, you know. I mean, spiritual warfare is a real issue. One of the best Bible teachers on that subject is uh, Pastor Bill Randalls. If you've not come across him, definitely worth listening to. But, you know, there are occasions, there are times that we will hold on to something because we've just not heard something else. I mean, how many times have we heard something that, that suddenly we, we, we have to revise our, our understanding of something because Scripture reveals something we never understood before? You know, like many, I used to believe that there were three kings and they went to visit Jesus in a stable. I now know because scripture makes it very clear that that's not the case. The Magi never went to Bethlehem, despite some modern versions actually rewriting the text to say that they did. You know, there are so many things that as we grow in grace, the Lord reveals to us and we understand more. So we need to be very careful about pulling down people. And I've seen too many ministries where they make it a speciality to attack other Christians. You know, sometimes there will be a difference of opinion and we need to be discerning as to whether it's just simply maybe that individual hasn't yet seen something or understood something from God's word. But where's their heart? Is their heart truly for the things of God? This uh, statement of the province of Asia, just for clarification, it's the whole um, area... Uh, Lydia, Mycenae, Caria, Phrygia. Uh, this is where Paul originally had been forbidden to go back in Acts 16.6 um, on a second missionary journey. But by the time of the third missionary journey, he actually stays for nearly three years in Ephesus, uh, which at that time was the capital of Asia. We're not talking about Asia as we tend to think of it today. Um, this whole area, though. Um, this, uh, the seven churches that Jesus writes to in Revelation 2 and 3 were all in the province of Asia. And uh, for want of a, a better, here we are. This is the map of this area. Um, so with Bithynia at the top and so on. But Galatia, uh, of course, we're familiar with, with Galatian Christians. Uh, we have that letter in Ephesus and so on. This is where these, uh, or this is where Timothy was pastoring the church. Uh, and this is where Paul is writing. Paul, obviously, in Rome, writing to um, Timothy in Ephesus. Uh, but this is the area. Asia Minor as well, uh, sometimes it's referred to. Paul says, the Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he might find mercy of the Lord in that day. And how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. What a breath of fresh air it is. You know, there are those that will, will speak against us. They'll try and tear down our ministry. They'll say things about us that you know, they'll want to try and trip us up. But when we find somebody that comes along with a ministry of encouragement, 
But what a blessing that is. Yeah, I wish these, so many of these people that have these ministries of discernment, so-called, would uh, turn, it, turn it around and have ministries of encouragement. It would be far more beneficial for the church. This Anesiphorus here, interesting character. We don't know a huge amount about him. Seemingly, at this point, he may well have himself have been arrested. Because Paul makes that statement, the Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. Now, we're not talking about salvation here. Clearly, he's, he's somebody who is saved, that he loves the Lord. He's already been ministering and so on. Uh, and it may well be now that he's in that position, he's been arrested, he's facing trial or whatever. We don't know the full details. But clearly, this man that Paul ma- mentions by name had been such a blessing. You know, that's where we should be. You know, blessing each other, encouraging each other. Whatever challenges and trials we're going through, we should be a blessing to each other. We're not going to do much of chapter 2, but I want to just start us off here because the opening of chapter 2, 2 Timothy says this, Thou therefore, so given all that we've said already, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I absolutely love this verse. I remember years ago hearing a Calvary pastor teach on this portion of scripture and it really hit me that we're told to be strong in the grace. You're not strong in your own wisdom or strong in your own ability or the resources that you possess. You're not strong in the fellowship that you attend or whatever you understand doctrinally or anything else, but to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing else will enable you to stand. That is how we stand, in grace. And you know, I, I praise God for those that have unpacked and helped us understand over the years really what grace is. There's, there's a great book by Chuck Smith um, about grace. Uh, and it really is, I think it's probably on the, the back table over there somewhere. Um, but he just talks about grace. Yeah, and sometimes it's been broken down as God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a pretty good summary in a sense of what grace is. But it's what God does. It's learning to stop trying hard. And it really is that let go and let God. You know, so many of us strive in our Christian walk. We strive to walk by faith. We strive to live a good Christian life. But you'll never accomplish it by New Year's resolutions or just that desire to do it. I mean, yes, certainly pray that God will help you, but the way that it's accomplished is always by grace. It's God giving you grace, something that wasn't already in you, imparting into you something that is new, that is fresh, and that is powerful. There's been a number of times in my life where I've been in situations where I've known that I've been utterly out of my depth, and I've had to go to the Lord and on my knees plead with him, and I have felt God's grace as just this overwhelming support and strength and wisdom. I've jokingly said a number of times to you before, I think, that even when I'm teaching, I I have to rely on God's grace. You know, there's been times I've listened back to to sermons I've preached in the the past, and I thought, that's incredible, I didn't know that. 
But so often the Lord will will just take over and and take us in a direction that I wasn't intending on going or say something I hadn't planned to say. And and every minister that I know says the same thing, that that, you you have to rely on the Lord. But you see, when we meet together, this is God's time. This 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 isn't the Barry show. This is God's time to, to speak to you. And he uses dumb donkeys to speak, you know. And hey, that you know, I'm willing to be a fool for Christ. We all need to be in that place where we recognise that if we really are to walk by faith, then it has to be by grace. There is no other way of doing it, and it takes almost a lifetime to really understand grace. And I encourage you to keep studying about grace and learning really what it is and how we can let go. It's almost like someone, you know, you see those kind of paragliders. And it's the wind that's taken, or just take a regular glider. You know, it's just the, 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 the air currents, the thermals and so on that, that keep that up in the, in the air. Well, that's very much like grace. There's kind of a faith element involved in that, isn't there? Just hoping and, and trusting that it's going to work. But that's exactly what grace is. It's, it's, it's faith in Jesus Christ. It's faith in the promises he's given us. And all that Paul is saying to Timothy is really kind of encapsulated in this. All the challenges he'd faced, that, that, that Timothy had faced, and the things that Paul is saying that he'd struggled with, He brings him to this point and says, Now therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There's no other way you'll you'll deal with the challenges. The the, the tears that we read about that Timothy had shed, no doubt the weight and the pressure of ministry, people persecuting him, even from within the congregation. There's no way Timothy could have handled all of that if it hadn't have been for the grace of that is in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, we've got that list there of the whole armor of God. In a sense, that is also grace. It's the things that the Lord provides that are not yours, they're not of you, that you go to him and he gives you. He equips you for the battle. He equips you for the challenges ahead by giving you things you didn't have. They're not in your natural armory. Twice we have it mentioned. You know, if you think you can live the Christian life through your own committed strength, you're in for a rude awakening. No one can do that. You know, but that's, again, where the Lord would bring us to, that place he's working with each one of us, to come to the place where we're utterly reliant upon him. This week, on uh, Wednesday evening, or Wednesday during the day, um, Joy had noticed, I think it was a Tuesday night, actually Joy had noticed some discoloring um, in our ceiling in the kitchen. Um, And it was like, okay, maybe there's an issue there, we need to ignore it, hope it'll go away. But by... Wednesday evening, that had turned into a few little drips that were starting to come through. 
those few little drips then by, that was about by about five, four or five o'clock, by about seven o'clock it was a little bit more and dripping from a couple of different places. And then I decided, because I could see that the ceiling boards were starting to sag a little bit, I kind of pierced the ceiling with a screwdriver and then we had a lot of water. Turn the water off immediately. I'll show you, I've got the, the video if anyone wants to see it. It was quite, quite exciting really. But for about 45 minutes after the water was turned off, we had water pouring through the ceiling. So much so that I thought, well, it's not coming from outside. Where else could it be coming from? Turns out it had just been, it was a pipe um, under one of the um, boards in one of the bedrooms. This pipe somehow had got a little pinhole in it. Um, wasn't next to anything else. So I don't know how it happened. The plumber was bemused, but... Um, this pipe just obviously been spraying out water for however long, presumably for a couple of days, uh, and the, the cavity is about that deep between the ceiling and uh, the floor, um, and clearly it, it, it filled all that particular area and soaked over into the next section, so we're not quite sure how much damage it's done yet, um, but there's a lot of water up there. But my point is this. Thursday morning, I realized that, you know, okay, there's no way I can go to work, we've got to sort this problem out, so... Then we thought about the fact we have four daughters that needed to be washed and we needed to all go to the loo and then drinks and so on. And, you know, you suddenly realize how dependent you are on water. You know, we couldn't, at that point, we couldn't flush any loos, we couldn't run any water for washes, we couldn't do our teeth, couldn't make cups of tea or coffee. It just suddenly you realize how important water is. And how much you rely on it and how much we just take it for granted. In the end, I end up turning the water on just for a few minutes and we had the girls in the bathroom filling buckets up and Joy was downstairs filling up all our kind of camping equipment, uh, water holders and things. And we had all our beakers with these kind of things. We had about 20 of these lined up on the, the worktop uh, just in case we didn't get through any more for the rest of the day. Now, as it happened, the plumber came out, fixed it and yeah, we're back online with water, fine, good. But the point was we just realised how dependent we were on water. And we'll, we'll close here this morning. That's how dependent we should be on Jesus. For everything. When, when Paul says that we should be strong in the grace. You know, if you are trying to live a Christian life without relying, consciously relying on the grace that is in Christ Jesus, you will fail. And it has to be that consciously relying. It's not just, a, you know, the Lord will do that and then you'll look back in years to come, oh, it was God's grace. You know, almost that, that the whole footprints, you know, poem, I'm sure you've heard it. It's kind of missing the point to, it, to a degree because actually we need to realize that all the way through, when there's only one set of footprints, that's when he's carrying us. Because all the time he's carrying us. There really isn't any time when we're walking and we're in our own strength and doing just fine, thank you. I think, you know, when... The writer to the Hebrews, again, I believe it's Paul, makes that comment about let us go on to perfection. He's listed a whole bunch of doctrinal things that we should know, we should understand, that we should have nailed down. That's the kind of thing that Paul is saying to Timothy, hold fast to those things. But he says that, you know, that's the bedrock. But let's go on to perfection. I think the idea of grace is there. 
Because as individuals, if we are going to understand our own lives in the context of the scheme of being a Christian and what it really means, we need to understand grace. We need to understand it more than we've ever done. We need to study it and we need to realize every day we have to rely on the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Next week, we'll pick it up. We'll talk a bit more about these things. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you this morning for this opportunity just to turn to your word, to be encouraged, to be edified. Oh, Father, please help us to understand what it truly means to live in grace, to live under grace, to live in and through grace. We thank you for your grace. We recognize that it was your grace that sent you to Calvary, that has purchased our salvation, that has given us the promise of new life. But Lord, we also understand that it's your grace that sanctifies us, that it's your grace that equips us and enables us to walk the walk, to walk undefiled in the way. And so Lord, help us to understand these things more and more over the days and the weeks ahead until you return, we pray. Father, keep us encouraging each other. Lord, I pray you raise up, Lord, even with each one of us, Lord, the, the gift, the ministry of encouragement that we will bless and support and encourage each other more and more. As we walk together for your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.